airing the Addisons. Let me say this, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to be careful and make sure that in everything, man, we are trying to get as close to what the word says as possible. And we got to understand that with that type of wickedness, man, you know, God does not wink at that. That's judgment. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. And you don't have shades of truth. You have truth or you have error. You have fact or you have fiction. And now we go into the thick of it. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Erin Addison's. On American Family Radio, we appreciate you joining us today. I'm Miki. And I'm Will. And Richard is over in Studio CC, and he's helping us get both of our guests on today. Mm -hmm. Today's topic of conversation is a question, and the question is, can we keep it? We'll talk about the spiritual implication of where we are in this country. And if the spiritual implication or discussing whether or not the spiritual implication of where we are uh, determines the outcome of our nation. Um, so we've been delivered a republic. Um, can we keep it? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. That's the question. I mean, that that was that was that was the statement that Benjamin Franklin made, at least as is noted, his comment, you know, to a group of people saying, you know, what have you guys or the delegates, the signers of the Constitution? What have you guys gotten for us? What have you what have you done? What have you given mm-hmm. us? And um, and he said famously, many people are familiar with this quote, a republic, if you can keep it. And so <laughs> that's the question that we're asking today. Can we keep it? Well. Can we keep it? And and the the case that we're going to make, David Barton is going to join us in the second and third segments. Mm-hmm. And um, the case that I want to make, and of course, you know, we'll we'll look to David as a historian, um, second, but first as a Christian. That's right. Um, what are the spiritual implications of you know the if you can keep it? And I actually think that because we have probably why we are asking the question now: Can we keep it? Mm-hmm. Because the if you can keep it depended on our spiritual condition. And, hmm. and we're going to, of course, look to the word of God um, to, to back that um, when we get into the second segment. But I think now we're asking, can we keep it? Because we didn't recognize that the if you can keep it depended on our dependence on God. Yeah. And really, truly looking to the Lord, not as a throwaway, not as a, you know, and God we trust as a slogan. Right. Not one nation under God as sort of a a type of superstition where we just we have to say that, Mm -hmm. but truly depending on the Lord. And and I, you know, I think, you know, again, not to blame the church for everything, but there's a responsibility that we have in any culture and any time, any place where we exist. There's a responsibility that we have to be salt and light. So we're going to talk about that. That's the topic of the show today. Can we keep it? But we're going to start off the show um, with a conversation in this first segment with our brother, Les Riley, who is the founder of Personhood Mississippi and the vice president of Personhood Alliance. And we're going to talk about, um, as I would describe it, the fact, I say the fact, <laughs> this is my strong opinion. Just because you say something is a fact doesn't make it a fact. That's I right. know that. <laughs> but you know you ever talk to somebody and they're about <laughs> to give you an opinion, but they say the fact is. Yeah. And you're like, that's not a fact. So I just did that. I know it's not a fact. <laughs> it's a strong opinion. The United States Supreme Court proving once again that it doesn't care about women, certainly doesn't care about babies. But now we know for sure, for sure, does not care about women. And so we'll talk about what the Supreme Court ruled yesterday um, as it pertains to Louisiana and whether or not doctors, do you call them doctors? Do you call them murderers, abortionists yeah. who are performing murders? They're killing babies. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Um, 
do they need to have admitting privileges? And and, and also, I think just a discussion too uh, about just the Supreme Court and as far as what the ch- what should the church be doing? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because it's quite clear that the Supreme Court has not been ruling justly in mm-hmm. what I would say, you know, so mm-hmm. what's the, what's the church's responsibility as far as life goes and what do uh, we, we need to be doing right now uh, just to mobilize? Excellent. Yeah, that's excellent. Les Riley, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Um, so let's make sure that our listeners are on the same page. Let's talk about um, the ruling from the Supreme Court, and then let's look at the spiritual implications of that. And again, as Will suggested, um, that we need to be exploring the role of the church as we should have always been exploring. What is it right. that we should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess um, I guess to start with the Supreme Court ruling, um, you know, first of all, obviously it, it was a terrible decision. Mm-hmm. Um, both in terms of the uh, of the legal and the moral implications, um, as well as uh, uh, as well as you know the question you mentioned about you know, can can states regulate medical clinics? But you know I, I think I think to start there um, almost start um, you know the, the whole thing about trying to catch the uh, horse after the gate, gate's been open. <laughs> I think, um, you know, in this case, you know, the, the gate's been open, the horse has already run through town, trampled mm. 10 people and run off a cliff. <laughs> and now, mm. you know, what's, uh, um, what's the problem with the, with the Supreme Court ruling? But right. Let's back up and, and really look at it, as you say, where, where the problem starts as a matter of both strategy and principle for the pro-life movement in general and the church in particular and, and Christians who are um, caused to not only co- call to be quote-unquote pro-life, but called to love our neighbors, to um, to defend the cause of the fatherless, to speak um, to speak for those who can't speak for themselves, mm-hmm. to do justice, to seek justice in the land, etc. And, and I think this is clearly another example of the fact that the pro-life movement and the political end of the pro-life movement, uh, in particular, has set us a failed strategy mm. over 50 years now. A, a, a failed strategy that has failed because it is a denial of first principles in both terms of the Constitution, but more importantly, the Scripture. So let, let's, let's start with this decision. Well, we know that this was just like um, the Texas um, uh, admitting privileges uh, ruling revisited two years later, so you know there's no or three years later. There's no there's no reason that we should have expected them to rule differently, mm-hmm. and particularly since Justice Roberts had already right. um, tipped his hand. Right. But you know, since in the times we we've talked before about this issue, you know, we always go back to first principles and say, if you apply this to a two year old, mm-hmm. is this an acceptable thing? So mm-hmm. so let's say that the the question was, can a state say that you can only murder two-year-olds by people who are licensed and can be admitted to the hospital. Mm. Well, that's morally repugnant. Yeah, we don't yeah. we don't regulate the murder of children. That's right. That's right. They, they, these are either image bearers. These are human beings. They're legal persons, or they're not. Mm. Man, that's that, that's that's good. You know, and, and I think and that's, that's the starting point. Right. Yeah. That's how and we have to look at it. No, I agree. Yeah, and then as a, as a matter of strategy. You know, again, as we talked about before, you know, we've documented on 
documentaries that personhood and basically mm-hmm. babies are murdered here and people like that have produced. Um, if you go back and you look at the whole strategy of, well, let's just, you know, all work to elect a Republican president <laughs> and get some, you know, get the right Supreme Court justices. Right. And then mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40 years, 20, 30, 40 million babies later, you know, then we're going to get rid of abortion when an illegitimate ruling that should have been ignored by the states and by the lesser magistrates um, who, who are called to interpose and interpret the Constitution themselves, you know, one day an, an illegal court decision can be overruled by a court full of Republican appointees who in their Senate hearing <laughs> said they weren't going to overturn Roe and who in their um, uh, own backgrounds, a lot of them have ties to the abortion industry mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, pro-abortion mm-hmm. ruling. It, it's just ludicrous. And, you know, I, I shared an article on a person in Mississippi Facebook page that came from the person of the Alliance uh, um, indicating that in 38 rulings the Supreme Court has done dealing with abortion since 1973, 75% of the votes to affirm Roe have been Republican appointees. Wow. <laughs> I mean... You know, say that again. Say Perry. that again, Les. I, wow. I, I think that that I think that bears repeating. I, I want you to to say that again, so that every one of us gets the opportunity to hear that very clearly. Yeah, in thirty eight rulings on abortion since nineteen seventy three, seventy five percent of the votes to affirm Roe have been by Republican appointees. So basically, you've got a twenty five percent chance of a Republican appointee. Voting to overturn Roe. Hmm. Now, now that that that's a that's not only a failed strategy, and that's not only the definition of insanity. Mm-hmm. That's idolatry, and it's wicked. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. and and on to your point, it indicates to us that we need to not only forsake this strategy of pragmatism and of trusting in princes, just happen to be princes who dress like elephants. We need to repent, but we need to move beyond that. You know, I, I remember when the, uh, I think it was Lawrence versus Texas, or, or one of the one of the first first rulings that started chipping away at the uh, the gay rights agenda or uh, pushing the gay rights agenda. I think it was 2014, the gay marriage decision. Um, not, it wasn't Lawrence versus Texas. That's beside the point. You know, I, I, I told some people, I said, Here, here's the problem. For years... The church has failed to engage the culture war, failed to defend the truth, failed to defend freedom, and particularly life, from an unapologetically biblical approach. That will work, because being on God's side has always worked. Mm-hmm. And, and basically what we've done is the, the, the four P's, I call it. Pragmatism, pessimism, pietism, and pop culture. That's what's driven the church. Mm-hmm. Man. And what what happened was every time there's one of these bad decisions, the proponents of those things just rush out as quick as they can and say, we need to do more of that. I mean, I can't tell you how many uh, emails and Facebook posts and et cetera said, well, you know, this just proves that we need to, you know, to elect Republicans to get more Republican Supreme Court appointees. <laughs> I'm like, what? And, yeah. and you know, so... But, but the four P's is where the church have operated. We've allowed our political pragmatism, our theological pragmatism to drive what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I would say, 
you know, we need to repent of the four P's and return to what I call the four R's. Repentance, revival, reformation, and restoration. Mm. That's good. We've got to, That's good. We've got, to re- we've got to repent of our indifference. We've got to repent of our own sexual sin. We've got to repent of our attitude towards children. <laughs> we've got a lot to repent of in the church, and, and particularly the fact that we have not gone to the streets, we've not gone to the pregnancy centers, we've not gone to the foster care and adoption agencies and defended the father, mm-hmm. because we care more about the things the world cares about. Mm. And, no, and I think that's a great parallel that you're drawing, Les, though. I, I just want to double back because I, I want to make sure, again, I just want to run a highlighter over what you're saying. Um, I think it's an important comparison to make. I think when you talk about going back to 2015 in Obergefell, that's just that's an outward display of a failure of the church to hold the line as it pertains to marriage. We've we've had that kind of corruption, that kind of immorality that's rampant in the church. And so then when we see that manifested in the culture, that the culture doesn't value marriage or doesn't have a biblical worldview, to say the least, um, then the same is true. I think this is the point that you're ultimately making, that the same is true for life. If in the church we don't value life, if in the church— And I look, I'll just tell you point blank, I received an email from someone— who listens to this program, who was upset about an opinion that I held and uh, no. went into talking about, <laughs> um, which is surprising, but went into talking about how, as I understand it, you're having your sixth child. Uh, you guys must have disposable income. Well, I don't think of my child as like somebody that, oh, I just happen to have a few extra dollars lying around. I see these children as a blessing from the Lord. And this is coming from a believer. So to your point, Les, I think we have to take responsibility for our failures. We don't see children the way the Lord God sees children. And we don't treat families uh, the way we should treat families, encouraging that there would be children, that there would be adoption, that there would be fostering. It's not happening. I know we're coming to the end of this break and we're going to have to let you go, Les, but I just want to give you the final word on this. Yeah. Well, well like I say, I mean, I, I think the, the beginning point is, is repenting and, and really looking at a different strategy. You know, repentance is not just feeling bad, but the Bible talks about what they call the fruits of repentance. And that's not just in our personal life, but it's in the way... We interact with things the way we approach life, the way we speak to the fatherless. And yeah. let's go back to a biblical approach. Starting, Amen. you know, I mean, uh, ultimately, this is going to end when we work in our state, when we work in our local we government. Go. Through, okay, and, and ultimately it begins with that. Thanks, bro. Yeah. This is fine. We, Thank you, Les. <laughs> we love Les. I'm sorry. We got to grab the break. We'll be right back. Aaron the Addisons on American Family Radio. We appreciate you listening. I'm Miki. And I'm Will, and that's Stephen Malcolm and Natalie Grant with Even Louder. Richard is over in Studio CC. We will um, go to our guest as soon as we have him on, David Barton of uh, Wall Builders. Uh, but before we do that, this gives me an opportunity to kind of set up, I guess, a framework of where you want to go. The question that we're asking today is can we keep it as we look at celebrating the birth of our nation? Um, the question is, you know, can can we keep it, right? 
The statement was made that, you know, we have secured for you a republic if you can keep it. Um, but the question is, can we keep it? And, and, and as always, we want to look at the spiritual implications behind the questions that we're asking in culture, behind the questions that we're asking um, as it pertains to our nation. And I was uh, reminded of this scripture in Jeremiah chapter 18. And we've talked about this before our, on the morning show. We would unpack this regularly, um, especially as we were going into um, the 2016 election. I remember just hammering this and hammering this and looking at, man, we have an opportunity to posture ourselves mm-hmm. our, our, ourselves with repentance, right? Mm-hmm. We have an opportunity to do that. Um, but I want to start with this scripture as the backdrop for our conversation with David Barton. In Jeremiah chapter 18, I'm going to start at verse 7, go to 10, and then we'll just kind of go from there, talking about the spiritual responsibility that we have in this country to keep this republic. It's not going to be done by our own grit. There's a spiritual implication there, a spiritual component to this. Uh, And again, Jeremiah chapter 18, um, verse 7 says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Verse 9. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, of course, in the context here, this was the potter and the clay illustration that the Lord is using with the prophet Jeremiah talking about the nation of Israel. But the Lord God is immutable. He changes not. So if he says that he will plant a nation or pluck up a nation, depending on that nation's posture before him, there is no reason that we should think our country would be different. Hmm. So we have to turn to the spiritual implications, I would say, of how we have (laughs) and we, the citizens, have postured this nation before the Lord. David Barton joins us. He is the founder and president of Wall Builders, a national pro-family organization. I almost feel silly introducing him because he's been (laughs) such a blessing to the body of Christ that I think people are like, we know who he is. Let him speak, you know. Um, But it's really been an encouragement because when you can take the history of this country Right. And understand what has been secured for us and then couple that with the spiritual implication of why it was founded and why it's to be fought for. Then you have a win. David, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the reason we invited you on is because I was reading the article that Matthew White wrote in the AFA journal, Pastors to Patriots, and I was so struck by your observations of the role of pastors uh, at the founding of this nation. And I think it's important for us to get back to understanding the role of pastors, yes, but the role of the body of Christ at large, that we have a huge part to play in keeping this republic. So I just, wherever you feel comfortable to start, um, how do we understand that rightly? Well, you know, there's there's several things, I think, going simultaneously here. Uh, one is I don't think we're nearly as well educated as we would like to think we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean that in several senses. It used to be, and if you go back to Malachi 2.7, it says, if you want to know about the law, you go ask the priest. And so the laws of Moses, which dealt with immigration, which dealt with economics, which dealt with military, which dealt with property rights, which dealt with everything, if you wanted to know what the laws were, you went and asked the priest. And in early America, that's the way it was. If you wanted to know what the laws were, you you asked the pastor, uh, because the pastor is the one who laid out the biblical principles of government. Uh, One good example is a book from 1690 
uh, John Locke, The Two Treatises of Government. Uh, we're doing an annotated copy of that book from 1690, but in less than 400 pages, he references the Bible over 1,500 times, actually over 1,700 times. Wow. Now, I don't know of any pastor that would reference the Scriptures more than 10 times than dealing with government. But here we have, uh, this is what we knew back in the day. And so Mm -hmm. if you wanted to know why what the British were doing was wrong, then ask a pastor. And he would tell you what the Bible said about taxation, what it said about representation, what it said about judiciary, what it said about the proper role of the military, etc. And so I think the first place we start is most pastors today are unaware of what the Bible says in most of those areas. And I would jump Mm -hmm. on and say, and most Christians are as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to put a lot of, of, of weight on the pastors, say, look, you're not teaching your flock. But at the same time, you know, ever since the, the, the Reformation, we believe that every Christian should read the Bible for himself. Amen. So I don't That's have right. to have a pastor to tell me what this says. So my, my next question would be, okay, can most Christians name three passages in the Bible that support the free market economic system, and that those three passages have to be from things that Jesus taught? Can you give me three parables Jesus taught that, that, that promotes the free market? And can you give me three verses in the Bible that shows where socialism is wrong? And the answer for 99.99% of Christians is, no, I can't. And so that's, that's part of where we are right now, is not only pastors, but Christians are no longer knowledgeable mm. what the Bible actually talks about. We think it's just a salvation book, and once you get your fire insurance, you're a good Come shape. Come on, David. And that's just not it. Listen, we have just done, last week we did an entire week of shows, and we entitled that that week of shows Sola Scriptura, and we said we're only going to stay in the Scriptures to help us navigate what's happening in the culture today. We're not going outside of the Bible to help us navigate what's happening in the culture. We have five kids, one on the way. We homeschool them. This is what I've been saying to believers. If you are reading and studying through the scriptures with your kids, you are going to educate them. As we were studying and continue to study through the book of Acts, we look at the fact that the Apostle Paul knew what his rights were as a Roman citizen, that he utilized the knowledge of his rights to advance the gospel. So as we're going through this, the natural question then becomes, well, okay, so what are our rights as American citizens? So then we have the opportunity to look at the Constitution with our kids, to look at the Declaration of Independence. And I think this is a part of watching your kids grow in their understanding. When you look at our country today, David, I mean, it seems that there has been such a decline. Not only is it in our churches, not only is it in our homes, but it's in our education system, which over 90 percent of kids are funneled through. Yeah, we have a real problem with education right now, not the least of which is, and there's three or four things I could go off on, but I'm just going to take the, the, the protests that have been going on. Yeah. Okay, let, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm just going to give it to them that, okay, let's say all Confederate statues are bad, and let's say all Confederate statues are racist, and let's say all Confederate statues need to come down. Let's say that that's their objective. Okay, if that's their stated objective, then somebody's going to have to tell me why it is that Abraham Lincoln went down and why it was the Ulysses S. Grant went right. down mm-hmm. and yep. why it was that uh, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment right. Monument went down right. and why it was that the, the monument in Minnesota to the victims of lynchings in previous generations also went down, why the Armenian Genocide Memorial went down. Somebody's mm-hmm. going to tell me how that relates to anything in the Civil War related to slavery. And mm-hmm. the answer is it doesn't. But see, they don't know that. And, and, and you know, there's, there's a reason 
that Francis Scott Key for 150 years was a great hero, and only in the last 10 years has he become a heel that's written a racist national anthem. How come everybody going through all the race fights of slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow and all the civil rights movement in the 60s, how come nobody saw racism in the national anthem until the last 10 years? It's because we knew history better than we know now. Wow. And so we really, and and I'm watching pastors and others jump on the black box and and jump on the side in uh, Black Lives Matters. Look, Black Lives Matter, from God's standpoint, we all know every life matters. Mm -hmm. And he does not single any out. There is no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, no slave, no free. He doesn't have any kind of measurement that says, oh, you're this life. You're just alive. And so for pastors to jump on anything other than that full equality of the Bible and to mm-hmm. single out any group is a form of racism, even if it's reverse yes, it racism. Is. It's just it's not biblical. It's just not right. Yeah. It's not right, and we should we should not be <laughs> incapacitated when it comes to speaking to this. I mean, to the point as you as you're going through your list of the monuments that they're that they're tearing down and the churches that they're defacing. I mean, I was one of the things that we were talking about, just sort of a, a private conversation here, is you know why this why this move to rename Providence. Like, d- did anybody look into the history of this? Did anybody look into the fact that we're talking about land that was purchased from the Native Americans, not plundered? Right? You understand? Like, these are things that I think. We don't have a conversation around because just to be able to talk about things triggers people. So when we look at the organization Black Lives Matter, and we've talked about this, but we say, look, this has nothing to do with what you're saying. This has everything to do with what your motives are. We've researched you. We know what you stand for. We know what the end goals are. We know that you're trained Marxist. You've admitted this. So it's incompatible. It's antithetical to the gospel. And unlike you, David, I mean, there are just a lot of people who aren't bold enough to say that. And it's because we don't know the truth upon which we're supposed to stand. Well, we are no longer studied well as a people, um, and part of this goes back to a pedagogical change that happened in the 1920s when progressives really did get a hold of education. Mm-hmm. They made five systemic changes in the philosophy of the pedagogy with which we conduct education. But the mm-hmm. most significant one was they changed us from being thinkers to being learners. Instead of teaching students how to think, they taught them how to learn. So in the mm-hmm. 1920s is where you see the introduction for the first time ever of multiple choice and fill-in-the-blank and true-false because all those tests are designed to say, did I, the teacher, tell you A, B, C, or D? I, the teacher, mm. told you this, true or false? I, the teacher, said, and, and it's all about repeating back what somebody else told us. We're no longer thinking. We're, we're not feeding ourselves. We're having somebody give us fish, and we're eating off what they gave us. And so we're no longer fishermen in the sense of being able to be self-sufficient, so we're not thinkers. And that's why right now, the first time that somebody says, uh, for example, Columbus is racist. We've got to tear down the monuments. Nobody asked why is he racist. Nobody said, you know, we have more than 600 monuments up. They've been up for 500 years. Are we to assume that every generation before this generation was racist, that they all celebrated a racist hero, and that there were no anti-racist people prior to this generation? No, that's mm. a stupid, stupid approach, but nobody's <laughs> asking those questions. And by the right. way, you know, it, it should be, uh, again, Pastors used to be the most learned in the community, and that's why you went to them for knowledge. Um, if you were part of, back with the Wesleys and the Whitfields, etc., to mm-hmm. be a Methodist pastor in good standing back then, you had to read four books a week. You had to be the one that knew the most about everything, because people came to you for guidance. And you were the guy with the most backbone. And, and a great example is Natalie Daggett, who was a pastor in the American uh, founding. He was the president of Yale University. 
And at the time the American War for Independence broke out, he was an older man. He was, as they described, he had long, white, flowing hair. And so New Haven, uh, 2,500 British soldiers came and attacked New Haven, and it turned out the militia was not there. They were out fighting battles elsewhere. And so what they did was 100 kids out of Yale said, well, we'll go take on the British. And we're talking kids that are in the vicinity of 13 through 16 years old. That's when they went to university back then. So 100 of these kids got their musket. They went out to take on the 2,500 British. And as they were going out, they said that coming by them on a gallop, on a horse, was the Reverend uh, was Reverend Napoli Daggett. They said his, his clerical robes were blowing in the wind behind him, and his long white hair was blowing in the wind, and he galloped by, and they all cheered and, and hollered for him. And he went up on top of a hill. Well, they the 100 kids continued to approach toward the British, and then when he got there, found out it was 2,500 British, which they didn't know it was 2,500, and the British opened fire on them. They all turned and ran. What happened was Napoli Daggett, by himself, stood on top of the hill and took on all 2,500 British by himself. He kept loading and reloading his rifle and shooting the British and reloading and shooting the British and reloading and shooting. One guy taking on 2,500, and that, that is not unusual wow. for what we had back then. Pastors are the most courageous. And, and so I ask pastors today, you know, Jesus tells us in, in John that the difference between a pastor and a hireling is that a, a pastor, when he sees danger, he goes toward the danger, throws himself in front of the danger, between the mm. congregation and the danger, and a hireling, when he sees it, turns and runs. And my curiosity to pastors, and I asked them this, I said, what are the dangers that you've seen coming at the church over the last 20 years? Secularism and what, what's happened in public education, what's happened with, you know, just go down the list. Mm-hmm. And say, okay, if that's the danger that's come at you, I want, I want you to show me the sermon you've preached about any of those things. And, mm-hmm. and they can't show me any sermon. Yeah. And, and we've actually done a lot of statistical research work, George Barn and others on this, asking pastors what they do preach about. Do they preach about anything other than kind of getting saved, and there's no discipleship going to any great degree anymore, at least not with the things that are in the news and in the culture, and that's what makes the Church today so different from previous generations. We, wow. we don't address, we're not equipped to think about, and we don't ask questions about what's going on. Wow. And let me say this, Will, I know you want to jump in with a question here, but let me just say this, lest someone confuses what you're saying, and I don't think that they would, mm-hmm. salvation is important. No one here is downplaying. We want people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but we would not have the New Testament letters that we have if after salvation, that's it. Because the question after that is, now how do you live in light of what you have professed? And I think that's where the church has gone off the rails. And I think that's where we haven't seen this role of the pastor and the shepherd exercise properly in our midst, just to make that point very clear. Yeah, I agree totally. And I think one of the things that the church has gotten away from is, and if you look at church history in the 60s, we redefine the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, Jesus gave in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and he made it really clear, go make disciples of all men. Well, somehow we turned that from making disciples into making converts. Yes, And so right. all of a sudden in the 1920s, we come up with the sinner's prayer. Now, my question is, and by the way, we can show historically where that got started. How did anybody get saved before they had the sinner's prayer? Well, there was a whole different <laughs> approach to things. And one of the things I love to do is point to the painting in the U.S. Capitol, the baptism of Pocahontas. And that's a 14-foot-high painting. It's 20 feet wide. The Reverend Alexander Whitaker is baptizing her in Virginia in, in the year 1613. She's the first convert to Christianity in Virginia. And we look at that baptism, except there was something very different about that. You only got baptized 
David, long time after you were converted because Jesus let me jump in. We got to grab this break. We'll take the break and we'll be right back. This is American Family Radio. Aaron the Addison's David Barton. Stay close. America, America, God shed His grace on thee. We've come too far. We've been through too much. Why would we ever leave? Welcome back to Aaron the Addison's on American Family Radio. We really do appreciate you listening. I'm Miki. And I'm Will, and that's John Howard, a song for the nation. Our brother David Barton, founder and president of Wall Builders. Um, what an incredible asset this ministry has been to the body of Christ, um, to our country, to mm-hmm. our country, but certainly to the body of Christ. And we're talking about um, our nation. And this is the question that I'm asking. Can we keep it? Can we keep the republic? I mean, can can we keep this going? And what are the spiritual implications um, that pretend, I guess, the answer to that question or determine what the answer to that, that question will ultimately be? Um, David, we had to this break was coming and we, we don't control it. So it has privilege. Um, we had to get out. <laughs> no, totally understand. I, I, I totally stepped on the brakes. So I'm sorry about that. No, 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 that's okay. But I want you to finish the point that you were making, talking about the difference between converts and disciples and yeah. followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's interesting that in the return of the Capitol, with that large painting to Pocahontas, the first convert to Christianity in Virginia, um, she baptized by the Reverend Alexander Whitaker, and it's interesting that she was discipled for a year before she was baptized, because she's... Jesus said in Luke 14, he says, you cannot be my disciple unless you first count the cost. Hmm. And so she went through and studied the Bible and read the Bible, learned about the doctrines, and am I willing to live by these standards? Am I willing to conduct my life according to this? And yes, I'm willing to follow Jesus at this kind of a cost. Okay, great, let's baptize you. And and, and by the way, uh, as she looks in the Bible, she sees that when God changes people, they often change their names, Abram from Abraham, and etc., uh, Jacob to Israel, and so she said, I, I've been Pocahontas, I now want to be Rebecca. And she took the name Rebecca, and the rest of her life she was known as Rebecca. We still call her Pocahontas, because if we called her Rebecca, we'd have to talk about her conversion, we want to do that in today's culture. Wow. So we just call her Pocahontas. Wow. But it's that, it's that notion of counting the cost. And Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples. Mm-hmm. And today, 72% of the nation professes Christianity, but only 14% read the Bible on a daily basis. So what we have is a lot of people who think they they are are his disciples, but they don't live by it. They don't continue in his word. They haven't counted the cost. They don't know it's expected. And and so what has happened literally is we have taken and said, if you say these words, you're in great shape. No, that's really not true, because we're told in in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that not only are we saved by grace through faith, it says we're saved unto good works. And so Mm -hmm. the result of actually... Being a Christian is your behavior changes, your fruit changes. And so what we know in polling right now is that in one, and George Barnett is great on this, and he's a good friend, and we've done books together and research together, but of 100 different statistical categories where we measure moral behaviors, whether it's lying or cheating or stealing or drug use or um, affairs or whatever it is, in 100 different categories, we cannot find a statistical difference in the behavior of professing Christians and professing non-Christians. And as a matter wow. of fact, right now, 600,000 abortions a year are performed on those who call themselves born-again Christians. So 
This is a real problem. 76% of Protestants do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. They're not thinking biblically. They're not in his word. They don't know what his word says. And so this is the biggest, biggest problem America has today, and we have it with pastors. When we, we deal with pastors, there's 384,000 churches and senior pastors in America calling 500 a day. What we find is out of that 500 a day, uh, that that roughly 72% say they disagree with the fundamental teachings of the Bible, that they think Jesus sinned, they don't think the Bible applies to today's life, they think it's full of errors, whatever. So that gives us 28% of, of pastors, which is 107,000 churches, where the, they, they believe the Bible, and that's good, 107,000 churches, which is really good. And then when we ask those pastors, how do you know if your church is successful? It's interesting, the top five answers of the Bible-believing churches, none of those answers come out of the Bible. And so the way we measure church success is not on what the Bible says. It's not about discipleship. It's about the number of people that that are in the pews. It's about the size of the offerings, how many staff members we've got. Jesus didn't use any of that. I I mean, he had hundreds of thousands that he touched, but it was the 12 guys he spent time with that changed the world, and that's discipleship. And I think that's what the church has gotten away from. We've gotten into crusades and numbers, and, and we've got to have a way to count people, so let's have the sinner's prayer. And I'm not against any of that, but you just have to bring forth fruit, and that's what the church is not doing. And again, I don't blame pastors, because every single Christian has a Bible available to them. If you're an American Christian, you own 4.4 Bibles on average, so nobody's short of Bibles. Read it and live by it. That's what we've got to wow. do to turn America back. Wow, just speaking mm. speaking of the, the the pastors and leaders and just you know all of us as Christians, you know, in reading this article, Matthew brought out you know about pastors like John Peter uh, Muhlenberg, and he talked yeah. about the Black Roll Regiment, and yeah. I, I was just wondering, like, you know, how do we begin to go back to that type of backbone and courage <laughs> within, uh, you know, the body of Christ, because they were talking about, like you said, they were talking about these issues, these issues of the day. I'm thinking about uh, Henry Ward Beecher, you know, when he, yeah. talk, he yeah. talked and preached about slavery. And so mm-hmm. how do we yeah. get back to that type of uh, conviction? Great question. You know, one of the things about discipleship is you have models and you, you live by models. You have mentors who help you. And one of the things in today's modern church is we're all about church growth seminars, and we look at each other. We don't read the biographies like we used to read them. We don't read the Smith, the Wigglesworth, or the Spurgeon. We don't read the John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. We don't read the Ezra Stiles or the William Payson's or those, those guys who had backbone. John Wise, oh my gosh, John Wise. What a significant influence he had. He's considered one of the... And, and by the way, political scientists, when they point out the six greatest... Uh, influences in shaping America for the six are pastors. Mm. But if, if I told you the four, uh, I mean, people would say, I've never heard of those guys. Well, it's not because there's not writings about them and what they did and how they ministered and how they thought and their teachings and the sermons they gave. It's all out there. But today mm-hmm. we're only into modern stuff. And so what happens is we're looking at ourselves in a mirror, as James says, and we're not seeing the way we should look, and we're walking away without changing things. So one of the great things we do is we look back to history and heroes of our faith. And that's mm. what the, the, the Jews were so good about doing in the Bible. They kept records of all of their kings, and you look back at their kings and their prophets, and we look back at Elijah and Elisha, and they were kind of looking at each other. And so if we were to get back in the old books, and, and you mentioned John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg and his brother Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, well, there are volumes of books about those guys. And if we started reading stories like that, 
my goodness, would we have a different role model for today, different mentors uh, to, to help shape us and guide think, us the way we should think. I think we're having some interference on the phone line. Um, okay. I just want to make sure that I yeah. wasn't the only one hearing that. I can hear a little bit of static there in the background. I don't know what just happened. Um, but l- let me say this, though, uh, because anybody who listens to the show for any length of time knows that I'm a student of church history. I, I regard church history as the most important history that we can learn. You know, who are we? How have we gotten here? What 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 about the, the Bible that we hold? How did we get the scriptures? All of these things are so vitally important. And this goes back really, Will the Great, to the point that I was making, you know, the question that was asked, who do you recommend that I go and listen to? And look, I hesitate because I'm like, mm-hmm. I could recommend them today and tomorrow, you know, they could be out helping pull down monuments. I don't <laughs> right. know what what's going on with these people. And so I think there is much to be said about understanding our history and, and understanding how the Lord kept his word that the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. Yeah, yeah. I think, it's, you know, I want to hear the forward that he was talking about. I'm just curious about those pastors. But um, I think, you know, looking back at some of those guys, we know that, you know, they're writings and things are not going to change because yeah, they're there. That's right. And I think we can look back to that, you know, but as well as, you know, the, the word of God, God, of course, you know, we have to look at that. But I, I think, man, you know, we have to find that backbone and that conviction today mm-hmm. to be able to speak up on these issues, to be able to talk about these these things that's happening right now and not be afraid of losing members, not be afraid of, right. you know, uh, you know, how this may rub somebody the wrong way and stuff like that. And I that conviction that's given by the Holy Spirit because he gives us boldness. You know, it that's has right. to be recaptured like today. We need it today. That's right. You know, I think a lot of people would look and, and I just say this as just as a matter of observ- observation. I mm-hmm. think a lot of people would look at what we're doing with our kids at our church on a Sunday morning where we are teaching them the fundamentals of the faith. Because David mentioned that, mm-hmm. that you go to these pastors and ask them about the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Yeah. And they don't they don't believe that. Man. So here we are. We're taking our kids even now and teaching them what orthodoxy is what heresy is, what mm-hmm. are the fundamentals of the faith, mm-hmm. and how if you remove the fundamentals, then you're no longer talking about the faith because we want our kids to be comfortable spotting it. We right. want our kids to recognize what it is so that they truly have a biblical worldview, not an affinity for the Bible, right. but that the Bible is with them as they navigate life. And I think that's Amen. a big part of what we're missing today. Yeah, yeah, I think we have David Guys, back. If I can jump in on that for a minute, mm-hmm. I yes. think that's one of the biggest uh, losses we've had since we've not done the thinking part. We've more gone to the learning part. And so if you if you look at stats right now, between 81 and 88 percent of church-raised kids will renounce their faith during their four years of college at a secular university. Mm. But if you look at Christian kids who choose to attend Christian college, 50 percent of them renounce their faith at a Christian college. Mm. Come and on. We go back to, to what Jesus said in, in, in Luke 6.40. He said, every student, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the profs at the Christian colleges got their, their degrees from Harvard and Princeton and Yale and all these other goofy places now. Mm-hmm. And so we're really challenging our kids. And so what, what, what our challenge today, I think, is, and we spend all summer doing youth leadership with 18 to 25-year-olds all summer long. We, we have just extensive programs and number of programs. And it's all about First Peter 3.15. It's being able to give a reason for the hope that's within you. And right, right now, our young people do not know the apologetics of faith. They can't defend their faith because they don't know why they believe what they believe. And the great Come example on. 
we see this every year with professors. Um, cannot tell you how often this happens where the professor will say, how many of you are, are professing Christians? You raise your hand. And he says, you won't be when you leave this class. Hmm. And he tells them that mm. blatantly. And there's there's three law firms in the United States that do nothing but defend Christians who are attacked for their faith in, in, in colleges. But here, here's the deal. He says, no, wait a minute. How many of you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? Oh, raise their hand. Said, do you realize how ridiculous that is? Virgin birth? She's pregnant. Can't be a virgin be pregnant. And the kids go, oh, you know what? He's right. Oh, that's stupid. I can't believe my parents really believe that. And so after a series of questions where they cannot answer the question, and by the way, this is the thing I think we miss as well. Jesus in the four Gospels asked over 300 questions. He was all the time asking questions. He didn't answer a whole lot, but he used questions to cause people to think and to make them think mm-hmm. differently. And that's what we do with kids all summer long is teach them how to ask questions, how to think. And every single year we've done this, we have kids go back and actually end up converting their professors simply by asking them questions they can't answer. (laughs) And it it is one of the most effective—I mean, it's the coolest, most encouraging—I got white hair, and I can't tell you how great it is— to see these young people go back and have the backbone to take on their professors and to do it intellectually mm-hmm. and to do it by asking questions and thinking. And it is just so cool. And that's where the church, I think, really has to, to look at the young people and say, we have to equip you in apologetics. You have to know why you believe what you believe. We've mm-hmm. been telling you what to believe, but you don't know why you believe it. How do you defend it? Mm-hmm. And that's the, big, Man, that's that's so the good. big thing they have to do. Yeah. Yeah. And and let me just say this, and then, you know, I, we're running out of time here, but let me just say this. Our kids can handle it, you know, and I'm talking about right. in our local fellowships, in our congregation, we do them a disservice by thinking that all they can do is eat goldfish and drink juice. That's our right. kids can handle it. I'm telling you, from 7 to 14 on a Sunday morning, we're talking about Anselm, the father of scholasticism in the church. We're talking about the ontological argument, and we are talking about believing so that you can understand, not understanding, and then maybe that leading to belief. There is a difference, and our kids can process that. David Barton, we are almost out of time, but I know right now our listeners have this huge question on their minds. Where can I get started? I think there's something that stirs in a person's heart when they hear a conversation like this. If they were to go to wallbuilders.com and they want to start looking at resources, where would you recommend they start? A couple of things. We did a book on this recently. It's called This Precarious Moment because the church is at a tipping point, so are millennials, so are the next generation. So that book, This Precarious Moment, looks at both history and Bible and statistics to give us a chart for it. The other thing I would say is, my goodness, look at ways to train young people. Um, mm-hmm. We have a leadership training program, again, that we do two weeks, uh, every two weeks throughout the summer. We would encourage people to go there. But if you go to wallbuilders.com, we also have plenty of resources that you can take and teach in your family or to small groups or your church or anything else. We have 260 old sermons up there that you can take and read and copy. There's just a lot of stuff at, at that website that will give you plenty of good, helpful information. That's so good. Wallbuilders.com, wallbuilders.com. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm fired up, and I know that our listeners are fired up because we look at what's happening in this country, and it seems insurmountable. And I I try to remind myself when you read the history of this nation, you read that you understand that there are men who had different opinions, and they had different perspectives on how things were to happen. But there was this one belief that if we could come together and if we could have this Constitution, which would be like this great unifier, right, um, then those things could work. And even as we see continued attacks on that, the church has a responsibility to equip our kids, to equip the next generation. Know what your rights are. 
know what you have received in this country and to not give up on that. And so anyway, David, we appreciate this time. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. God bless all you do. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. God bless you. Man, Will the Great. Mm. What a great show. Great. Great. I love it. You stirred? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. We're out of time. Until tomorrow, Lord willing. God bless.